God wanted me to share, what is it that, how, how God would lead us as a congregation in the coming months, and I didn't want to start too long of a series, because I know we're still on the back end of summer, and that can cause difficulty for um, people to kind of still be gone for certain weeks for vacations or visits and everything, so I decided um, as, through prayer that we're going to do a five-week overview of the book of Acts, so we're going to be covering multiple chapters each week. Don't worry, we're not going to read the entirety of all the chapters. Um, but we're going to cover multiple chapters each week, and we're going to pull out some elements of it and see what is it that the early church did, what is it that they committed themselves to, what did life look like for them, and we're going to pull back elements and see what does that mean for us. All right, so that's what we're going to do for the next five weeks, getting us up into the end of August, and then we have Labor Day, and then we'll probably start a series the second Sunday of September, maybe a little bit lengthier one of actually going through um, a book of the Bible altogether rather than just an overview. But that's where we're at. That's where we're headed. I think it's important for us as a church as we, you know, I've been here a month now. I think it's important for us to come together and say this is what the church committed themselves to in the Bible. This is what we should commit ourselves to together. So that's where we're going to be at today. We're going to get through part of Acts chapter 5, hopefully. That's five chapters I know. Don't worry, we'll get there, okay? Don't, don't be worried that it's going to take two hours. It won't, I promise. All right, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that you included an account of what the early church committed themselves to. And as we approach that this morning, may we have your spirit convict our hearts of areas in our life that don't line up with the way that they lived. But may we be encouraged in the things that we are committing ourselves to that they committed themselves to. I ask that you would use your word this morning to speak into our minds and our hearts in such a way that it would make us more like Jesus that it would make us line up more with how you want us to live in the midst of this crazy world that we're all in the midst of right now. Give us clarity of what you meant in certain parts of your word. And like I said, give us conviction. May your spirit speak to us. May, may he help us to focus. Our mind can be so disrupted with all the stuff that's going on in life. May we be able to pull back from all of that and focus in on who you are, who Christ is, and what your word says this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had somebody so influential in your life that you can't imagine life without them? That you actually can't think of yourself as being the person you are today if that person hadn't influenced you in one way or another? For some of you, it might be a parent. For some of you, it might be just a friend that has come alongside you in the midst of really difficult times. It might be a sibling. It could be a number of things. It could be even one of your own children. That you can actually look back at your life and say, my life was radically changed by my relationship with this person. And how much grief does it cause when we lose someone like that? whether they pass away or maybe they move away or you move away. And we just, we can't imagine life without this person's 
face-to-face influence because we've had it for so long and they've been so important to us. It's kind of where the disciples are left at the beginning of Acts. Right here in the first chapter, we have Jesus resurrected, he teaches them for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. He physically leaves them. And the disciples who have walked with Jesus, committed their lives to this Jesus, are now left with, he has so profoundly influenced us, what are we going to do? Our lives have been radically changed, but how are we going to live now that he is gone? So that's where we're at. As, as Jesus ascends into heaven, we know that he's going to send the Spirit right away in Acts chapter 2, and that's going to change everything for the church throughout the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, really. So let me give you some, some context here as we approach Acts. This is the second volume of Luke's work, right? We probably all know the Gospel of Luke, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke wrote Acts as well. This is his second account, right? So he has two volumes. He has his Gospel of Jesus' life and the book of Acts about what happened after Jesus ascended. He's writing to Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, but we know that he dedicated his first volume as well as his second volume to him. And so that gives us some consistency of why Luke is writing. I'm not going to give too much of all the background because we're going to kind of see the story play out throughout Acts. But there's one note that I want us to be careful of when we approach interpreting Acts. And that is that we need to be able to differentiate between when Luke is describing something, and when Luke is prescribing something. What I mean by that is Luke is giving us an historical account of what happened in the early church. That does not mean that every single thing that happened in the early church is going to look the same for us today. Does that make sense? We're going to see some things happen, like just for an example, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes for the first time, their building that they're in literally shakes upon the power of the Holy Spirit coming. That doesn't mean we're doing something wrong if our building doesn't shake on Sunday morning, right? It's a descriptive thing. It's not necessarily prescriptive. It's not saying you have to have this happen in order to be the real church. But there are elements in the book where we can take and say, that we need that just as much now as they'd had it then, all right? So we, we're going to differentiate, and I'll, I'll try to make as many notes as I can when we hit some of those more confusing parts on how we should understand those. But just want to clarify that from the get-go, because I think a lot of confusion is caused, and actually a lot of, I would say, denominational differences are caused by that alone, of saying, does all of this have to look exactly the same now, or are there certain things that happened back then that are going to look different now, even though it's the same spirit working? So let's start with the disciples' conversation. Jesus has been teaching them for 40 days, and we're going to start with a conversation with Jesus here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So right from the get-go, we find the identity of the disciples as Jesus ascends into heaven. As Jesus gives his last words, he tells them their identity is to be found as his witnesses. Right, So that's why the whole title of the series is The Witness of the Early Church. Right here, the first point of the message, we are to be witnesses of Christ. That's Jesus' first point to him here is, you're going to be eyewitnesses, right? Because these are men that he's talking to. These are men that have walked with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. These are the people that stuck with him. Though many fell away in the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus gathered them back together after his resurrection. There's about 120 people at this point. And Jesus says, you've been with me. You saw what I taught. You, you, you heard everything. You saw what I did, the miracles that were done. You saw the crucifixion. You saw the resurrection. You saw me now raised from the dead. Now you're going to be witnesses to that. You're going to go tell people what you've heard. You're going to go tell people what you've seen. It's very much different than what we would have in our current day and age of eyewitness accounts when a crime happens. In case some of you probably already know this, though, right? Eyewitness accounts can be very unreliable, right? All of a sudden, you have one person saying they saw a blonde-haired woman, five-foot-tall, driving a red truck away, and another person says they saw a six-foot-tall, brown-haired man driving a black car, right? I mean, eyewitness accounts just differ from each other in many situations in our day and age. Not here. This was a universal message. Jesus had spent 40 days after his resurrection clarifying everything for them, saying this is what it was all about, right? When you missed it, when I told you I was going to be killed and raised in three days, this is what I was talking about. He gave them all this clarification for it. So they now knew their message, right? They knew that they were to be witnesses of Jesus. But he tells them to wait. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, but wait until you've received power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Right? Up until this point in time, the Holy Spirit hasn't ever permanently dwelled anywhere. Right? We saw throughout the whole Old Testament that the Spirit would come upon people for certain tasks, and then he would leave them. Like Saul. Saul was anointed by the Spirit of God, and then this, the Spirit left him and went to David. Right? So there's certain people throughout the Old Testament that had him for a temporary period of time. Here the Spirit is going to come, and he's going to stay. He's going to indwell you, and he's going to stay in you. And Jesus tells them, when the Spirit comes, you're going to have power. There's a strength, there's a power that comes with having the Spirit. He's basically telling them, it's not going to be on your own strength. Which the disciples are probably relieved about. Right? Because up until this point, they've been depending upon Jesus' strength anyway. They've been, when Jesus sends them out to do ministry, well, Jesus, before his crucifixion, he actually empowers them to do the ministry. So they're, they've always had to lean on Jesus. So now Jesus is leaving them, and they're like, where's our power going to come from here? And he's like, don't worry, just wait. The Spirit's going to come. And then we see Jesus' mission for them Also in verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
if you look at these areas, they're actually like circles of geography that gradually get bigger. You have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. The circle just continues out from there. And that's actually what we see as kind of a rough structure of the book of Acts, as we see how the gospel advances to the ends of the earth to the point where at the end Paul's in Rome. But also, some people only see that as the main point of why Jesus says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But we also have to remember what, what the conflict was going on here between Jews and non-Jews. Right? The Jewish people thought they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Gentiles had no part. Right? They're unclean. We don't talk to them. We don't mess with them. Basically, the Samaritans were the Gentiles to them, right? They were either half-Jews or non-Jews, or they were isolated. And Jesus says, you're going to take the gospel to Jerusalem? They're like, okay, Jewish. Judea, okay, Jewish. Samaria, wait a second. And then Jesus goes further and says, to the ends of the earth. Not only Samaria, but to everybody else beyond Samaria. Showing that the gospel breaks down all sorts of barriers, right? These, these cultural barriers that existed, these racial barriers that existed are all broken down by the gospel, by the witness of who Jesus is. The gospel, the crucifixion, the resurrection is meant for everybody. And then we see Jesus ascends into heaven and if you read, read on, the disciples are just left there gazing. They're kind of wondering, what's going to happen here? Because there's, there's this expectation that's, that's stirring within their hearts, and we're going to see how that expectation is answered. Look at verse 11. Two men in white robes, angels, come to the disciples as they're staring up where Jesus just went. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And if you follow that through the rest of the New Testament, you see that the disciples, the apostles, lived with an expectation that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. There was this expectation of, We're called to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and we don't know when he's coming back, but we think it's while we're still alive. So we better get on it. They have this expectation that Jesus is going to come back to them, and here they're told it's going to be in the same way that he just left them. Right? That he's going to now descend again at some point. Now we know... The disciples didn't have their expectation necessarily met. I don't think they really care right now, right? Once they die, they're surely in much more satisfaction anyway. And then as we go through the rest of chapter 1, these 120 return back to Jerusalem, and they pray, waiting for the Spirit like Jesus told them. And as they are praying, they decide, hey, Judas killed himself because of what he did to Jesus. We need a 12th apostle. So they 
come down to two men trying to figure out who should it be that these, these two men have followed Jesus since the beginning and they cast lots and it falls on Matthias. Again, this is a descriptive part, not a prescriptive. When we make decisions for deacons here, we don't need to cast lots for it. But that's what they did, and they have it land on Matthias. And some people are troubled by this. They actually think that because they made a decision before the Spirit came, that they missed on who was supposed to be the apostle, that actually Paul was supposed to be the apostle, and they missed it. But I I, I think we misread it if we interpret it that way, because people say, well, you never hear of Matthias, the rest of the book of Acts, or the rest of the New Testament. Actually, you don't hear of any of the disciples other than Peter, James, and John after this point in Acts chapter 1. In the rest of the book of Acts, you don't hear of any of the other disciples. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that Matthias was the incorrect one, because the rest of them aren't named either. They just went about being witnesses, and we only get the accounts of really three and then a fourth apostle added with Paul. I don't think that means we say that the rest of them were wrong apostles. But that brings us to the end of chapter 1. That's the longest one to get through, so don't worry. But I want to take a step back and ask a couple questions to ourselves as we look at some elements here of chapter 1. First one is, do you consider your, me as well, our primary role in life as being a witness for Christ? That your primary role in life is to tell people of who Jesus is, specifically that he was killed, crucified, and resurrected. Do you see that as your primary purpose, is to be a witness? I'm not saying, are you a full-time evangelist? I'm not saying, are you a full-time ministry? Because we even know that Paul worked a job in order to provide for his ministry. But I'm saying, do you see that as your foremost position in life? Your greatest honor is that you get to be a witness of Christ to people around you. You get to represent Jesus to your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your coworkers, your neighbors, even the people at the store. Because that was the understanding of the early church. Right? Because as a witness... The second question we need to ask ourselves, do we live with an expectation of Jesus' return? Right? I, now, I want to be careful here because Christians tend to fall on one of two extremes when it comes to Jesus returning. We either become obsessed with the details to the point that we try to predict a day and time, which Jesus just told them you can't, or we dislike that idea so much that we put it on the back burner and live as if it's not really going to happen. And I think the apostles in the early church lived with a healthy expectation. They weren't obsessed of trying to say, well, what exact day or year is it going to happen? But they also had it at the forefront of their minds as they were sharing the gospel that at any moment they thought Jesus could be returning. Right? I'm not at this point trying to interpret Revelation for you and talk about what's going on in our world and how that relates to Revelation. We don't, I don't have time in this series to go through all of Revelation But all I'm saying is, regardless of those details, everybody should be living with an expectation that Jesus is coming. Period. And they lived with an expectation of he was coming in their lifetime. Should we do the same? 
would it cause you to live differently if you did expect that? Because let me just tell you, for, for me personally, my dreams of having a large retirement account or even my dream of getting the next new car that our family needs don't nearly compare when I start to think about Jesus might return before that. Those financial issues, while I should be a good steward of what God has given me, don't necessarily rise up to as much if I'm living with an expectation of Jesus could be returning anyway. Back to the apostles. We go into chapter 2 and we see that they become witnesses. So they're witnesses of Christ. We see them become witnesses by the Spirit. Look what happens right from the get-go. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Oh boy, tongues. A lot of us hear this and we start to get confused or we start to get a little defensive because, right, we have all sorts of people with different views on tongues. I'm just going to address this moment. I believe this is a prescriptive moment, not a descriptive moment. I don't believe that if you are a believer in Jesus and you've never spoken in tongues, that means that you're not really a believer. I don't think this is prescriptive of all Christian life. This is a descriptive moment of the Spirit coming for the first time. And let me give clarification on what I think tongues is here, because it kind of explains it as you go throughout the passage. There were men gathered from other countries coming together for a festival on the day of Pentecost which means they spoke other languages. The Holy Spirit comes, and remember, the point of the power of the Spirit is that they will be witnesses to these other nations. So as the Spirit comes, he gives the supernatural ability to some of these men in Jerusalem to speak languages that they never knew before. They weren't familiar with. He gives them the supernatural ability to speak these languages in order to share Christ with these men who speak languages that they didn't understand. So now these men from other countries, these people from other nations, are hearing the gospel in their own language, which these people never knew how to speak. There's a point to it here, right? There's a reason. I don't think all of us have to speak in tongues because we all speak the same language, I think this could still happen in other nations. I think if for missionaries going to tribal groups of people who have a language that nobody's figured out yet, I think God, by the Spirit, could give a supernatural ability to them to speak that language that the witness of Christ might be heard. But I don't think it necessarily has to be prescriptive of all Christian life. Peter stands up by the power of the Spirit now and gives the first sermon On the day of Pentecost, he quotes Joel, saying that this is what's being accomplished now, being fulfilled now, right? He said, Joel gave a prophecy that there was going to be a day when God would pour out his spirit on all peoples, that people would, there would be signs and wonders, there would be visions, that, and here's the important part at the end, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying, that's where we're at. 
We're telling you about Jesus, the Lord, and all who call upon him will be saved by the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter shares the gospel. He continues on to quote Psalm chapter 16 and talk about how David was a prophet. Let's go to verse 30 in chapter 2. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, talking about David here, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In Psalm chapter 16, David actually says, you won't, he's speaking to God, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter takes that text here and says, David wasn't talking about himself, because David died. David's flesh is decaying at this moment. So David was prophesying in Psalm 16 about the resurrection, that Christ would die, but he wouldn't be abandoned to death. That he wouldn't see corruption because three days later he would be resurrected. And this is what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. That the point of Peter's message, of the church's message, is not just that Jesus died for your sins, but he was resurrected. This leads Peter's hearers to ask the question of, well, what shall we do? You've just told us that Jesus died. Specifically, the Jewish people, Peter actually says, you killed him. And now he's been resurrected. And they're left saying, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin and identify yourselves with this resurrected Christ. Right? Peter's not saying that baptism is a necessity for salvation here. Right, We have to differentiate that. But baptism for the early church was an identification with Christ. Right, we got to understand, we get baptized and the people who come see us get baptized are our church family. They go out in public and get baptized. Everybody who wants to kill them sees it happen. Or at least hears really quickly that it happened because it was being done in public. This was a public identification with Christ whom most people hated. Right? Remember, there's only 120 people here following until Peter gives this sermon. Because Peter gives the sermon and we find out that 3,000 people get saved. Their numbers go from 120 to over 3,000 people in one sermon by the power of of the Spirit and the message of the resurrected Christ. And as they grow to this number, they commit themselves to specific things. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They commit themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we have. They commit themselves to fellowship with each other, to deep connections with other witnesses, other believers. They commit themselves to the breaking of bread, probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, but also them sharing meals in each other's homes together. And they commit themselves to prayer. 
And as they commit themselves to this, the apostles are continued to give power to do signs and wonders, right? It says through the apostles these signs and wonders were being done. And then it says they had all things in common. And if you read the rest of it, it explains that these people were selling their possessions for each other. As anybody had a need come up, this person's like, well, I have this. Let me go sell this so that I can give you the money for it so you can have your need met. That's the way that the believers of the early church interacted with each other. We'll get more on that a little bit later because we see it happen again. But notice at the end of chapter 2, it tells us, the Lord added to their number each day. As they commit themselves as a community of believers to this, these things, these specific things, God adds to their number. More and more every day, people are being saved by the message of the resurrected Jesus. We kind of see a shift in the moment here, right? So Luke is telling us generally about all believers at this point, and now he shifts in chapter 3 to a specific story of the power of the Spirit. So Peter and John are walking up to the temple, and there's this lame man. He's been lame from birth, and he sits there on the way to the temple asking people for money, right? He has no way to work because he's been lame from birth. He's asking people for money. He asks Peter and John for money, and Peter turns to him and says, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. And everybody's in utter amazement because they know that this guy has been lame from birth. Elsewhere it tells us it's been over 40 years of this guy sitting there lame, begging for money. And just like that, in the name of Jesus, he can walk. Everybody's amazed by this which gives Peter an opportunity, right? Peter's like, I'm a witness for Jesus. Look what just happened in the name of Jesus. Now I get to share with people. So Peter, though, says, why are you surprised? He says, we didn't do this on our own power, but on the power of the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus can raise from the dead, why wouldn't he be able by that same power to raise up a lame man to walk? He tells them, your prophets, right? He's speaking to Jewish people here, right? Going to the temple. Your prophets spoke of this. They told of the day when a Messiah would suffer. They told of when a a Messiah is going to be resurrected. And so he calls upon them and says what? Repent. Turn from your old ways. Come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And what happens? They go from their 3,000 number to 5,000 people. Peter's given two sermons and has gone from 100 people to 5,000 people. But it's not on him. Right? We we tend to think, man, Peter must have been the best evangelist. Right? But over and over you hear Peter say, it's not on our own power. It's the Spirit. It's the resurrected Jesus doing this. But we can imagine the Jewish leaders aren't too happy about this, right? We have the priests and the Sadducees that are frustrated about hearing about this resurrected Jesus whom they killed. And so they arrest them. They arrest Peter and John. I'm going to put that aside 
while we talk about what's happened in chapters 2 and 3 at this point. Just a couple things to ask ourselves. Are our lives displayed as having power of the Spirit in them? I'm not saying, do you do miracles? I'm not saying, do buildings shake when you pray? But I'm asking, does your life look radically different than someone who doesn't have Jesus? Has the Spirit changed you, given you power to live differently than the way the rest of the world does? And the second question is, do you believe the resurrected Christ has importance for us today? I'm not asking, do you know the right answer to that question? I'm asking, does your life display that? Remember that person from the beginning I asked you about who was so influential in your life? If that person passed away and then was raised from the dead, would you have anything to say about it? Now, how much more the Messiah... Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the one who changes us, who saves us, who changes us, transforms us by the power of his spirit. How much more should we be sharing of his resurrection? Our only hope to have power in this life, to live the way God wants us to, and our only hope for glory later on is that Jesus is alive now. And he is. But we as Christians can get so caught up in his death that his resurrection becomes a mere side note. But his resurrection means everything for you and me. If the resurrection didn't happen, we have no hope. Then we see that as Peter and John deal with the council of Jewish leaders, that they become witnesses with boldness in their life. Right? So the council comes to them and questions them about this man that was healed. They said, how did this happen? By what power did this happen? Of course, Peter, the resurrected Jesus. He says, Jesus is the one who healed this man. He gives this popular statement here at the end. It was scrolling at the beginning, but if you didn't catch it, let me read it. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He tells these Jewish leaders, as, even though he's arrested, he says, you have no other hope. The resurrected Christ is it. Of course, they hate this claim. I mean, they're the ones who led the plot to kill Jesus. But they have no ground to stand on. There were actually people who saw this lame man healed. There was people who knew this man for 40 years, and now he's walking. They have no ground to stand on to do anything to Peter and John. So they tell them, we'll let this incident go. Just stop talking about Jesus. Just stop. It's all you got to do. And Peter responds with a classic Peter response. Verse 19 of chapter 4. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He says, If you think we should listen to you rather than listen to the message that Christ just told us to preach, you judge that. But we're going to keep speaking of what we're witnesses of. 
this tremendous boldness in Peter and John here. So Jewish leaders, it doesn't give a response from them. They just release them. So Peter and John go back to the other believers, report what has happened. And what do they do? They gather together and pray. And I just want you to catch a glimpse. After everything that just happened, look at what they pray for in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. After Peter just stood up to Jewish leaders while he was arrested, they decide, let's gather together and pray for boldness. And the Spirit grants their prayer. They continue to spread the word with boldness. I think we can take the meaning quite clear from this, right? Does your life resemble one of boldness by the power of the Spirit? Right? They, they went and prayed afterwards to have more boldness. In the midst of those who could arrest them, who already had arrested them. And here we are, as Christians, many of us, afraid to share the gospel with our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, because we fear their rejection. They can't even arrest us. But we're afraid of them rejecting us. So we back down. But the power of the Spirit should stir us to step beyond that fear. Because the resurrected Jesus is better. He's greater than anything else in this world. Any other news we could get. Any approval we could get from somebody else. The resurrected Jesus' message is better. So I hope that we as a church pray for this boldness. That in the midst of everything going on in our world, that we would be bold to be witnesses for the resurrected Jesus. Because we believe who he is. And that's what we're going to see as we get into the last section here. As we see this community of witnesses gather together, we see how they love each other. right? So we shift from the relationship between Peter and John and the believers to the outside world to kind of the, the inner workings of the lives of the believers here. It says, it kind of gives us again a rundown of how they shared things with each other. Some were actually selling their homes and land to give the money to other believers. All right, as they're filled with the Spirit... They are selling their possessions to help each other out. It shows the immense love that they have for each other. Now again, this is descriptive. This doesn't mean that if you don't sell your home and give the money to the church that you're not a Christian. But maybe it should stimulate our minds a little bit to think through how much money do I spend on my wants Versus am I trying to help those in need? And then we see this contrast happen as we get into the first part of chapter 5. We have Ananias and Sapphira show up. They're meant to serve as a contrast between the community of believers. Ananias and Sapphira sell a field. 
and they bring some of the money to the apostles, but what they say is, here's all the money we sold the field for. Keeping some back for themselves. Now, for us, that doesn't seem necessarily all that bad because we're like, well, you give a tithe, right? So you give a portion, but you also keep a portion. Isn't that what they're doing? But the by the implication of the story is they told the apostles, they gave the idea to the apostles that this was all that they had sold the field for. So it wasn't necessarily that they kept a portion. They didn't even really have to sell the field. Nobody told them they had to sell it. They could have kept the field. But they sold it and gave a portion and said, here's all of it. And we see Ananias first contrasted with the rest of the believers. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So he tells Ananias, you've been filled with Satan as opposed to the community of believers who are filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast happening here. And he says, you have not lied to man, though didn't he lie to man? He lied to the apostles. But Peter says, if you're lying to this group of believers, you're lying to God. We see this shift happen here, right? We're starting to see what's happening. In the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and the temple as the presence of Jesus. Now, Peter's saying the people of God has become the presence of God. Right? There is no physical place where God's presence dwells now. It's within God's people that his presence dwells. So Peter's saying if you lie to those people, you're lying to God. And so as a result of this, what happens? Ananias drops dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in. They say, Sapphira, did you sell the land for this amount and give the money? Yes. Behold, the men who just carried your husband out are waiting for you at the door. And she drops dead. And look at what happens as a result. Last verse here, chapter 5, verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. All the believers recognized that they needed to fully commit themselves to this thing. That Christ demands everything from them. I don't think for the believers it was a trembling fear. I think it was almost like a reverence of, our God's going to protect us. God's presence dwells with us as his believers now. His, his spirit is in us. He's going to protect us now. That doesn't mean they never face persecution. We'll see that next week. But what it means is God is with them. For unbelievers, it may be a trembling fear. Because Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie to these people, and they were killed for it. God is making it clear that these are his people. Jesus is saying, these are my witnesses empowered by my spirit, you don't even give a hint of hypocrisy towards them. He's saying, if you want to pretend to be a believer, but continue with a heart of unbelief, you're asking for trouble. And I think, really, this could summarize 
everything that's happened so far in the first five chapters. This is an exhortation to us as believers to ask the question, do our hearts, Monday through Saturday, match up with what we sing on Sunday? Does the way we live Monday through Saturday match up with the, the truths we so gloriously sing, the, the truths we read out of the Bible on Sundays? Does that match up with the rest of our week? Right? Because that's what we saw throughout this first five chapters that there's a commitment to be a witness for Jesus, there's a commitment to expect his return to happen, to live in a way empowered by the Spirit, that there's a resurrected Jesus, that there's a message we're called to share, a message to share with boldness, because we truly believe everything we say we believe about Jesus. So to claim that you're giving it all to Christ while holding some back for yourself, for this group of people... That wasn't a sign of, oh, we just need to go grab, grab those people and guide them in the right direction. For them to hold, hold unbelief in their heart and to refuse to give themselves to Christ was a sign of, they're not part of us. So it, that's telling us if there's a heart of unbelief in us, that we should really start to think through things here if we're going to pretend to be a believer. It should urge us to look deep within our hearts and ask, what am I living for? Am I living for success in this world, for my money that I get, the job that I have, the skills that I have, the skills that my kids have, the skills that my grandkids have? Or am I living for Christ? To be his witness to have his spirit, to be empowered by it, to have boldness because I believe the message and that I love the people who also believe the same thing. So as we close our time this morning, I want to urge us to think about these things. For those, anybody in here, anybody at home watching who hasn't trusted in Christ, May you make that decision today. May your heart of unbelief turn to a heart of belief in the resurrected Savior who's better than anything else this world could offer. And for those of us who have Christ, may we recenter our lives and truly understand what does it mean to be a witness for him. Do we actually believe that Jesus was resurrected? Does that have implications for our life? Do we expect that Jesus is coming back? Are we living each day with that expectation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and that that gives us our hope that it means we have power in this life. It means that we have hope for eternal life in the next life. All of our hope, all of our faith rests on the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. So may we display that in our lives each week. 
as we go through this week, may we be bold witnesses of who Jesus is, of who you are. Give us your spirit. Empower us with him. That we might be faithful to be the witnesses you've called us to be. I ask all of this in Jesus' name.